welcome. I have Caleb Greer here with me today, who is my functional medicine doctor and who has sort of <laughs> been so kind with his practice too, because I sent all of my friends his way. So um, if you're looking for functional medicine help or any sort of guidance in whatever your medicine medical journey is, he is the guy. And he also works via Zoom. So if you're not in Austin, but anyways, um, hi, Caleb. Thanks for hi. being here. Um, opening up the space. Yeah, I figured that we could start with functional medicine because I still think that there is not even stigma around it. There's just, there's curiosity, but there's also like a lot of unknowns. So what what is it? What do you do? Well, so really functional medicine at its fundamental, um, you know, on a fundamental layer is, is a philosophy. So it's not even really a, a treatment paradigm so much as it is, you know, refocusing on areas that people can kind of take control of their health with their lifestyle. So from a nutritional you know, perspective and, and exercise and sleep and, and detoxification and, and bowel movements and all that kind of stuff. And, and basically it, it encompasses almost the, the optimal strategies for how to live a healthy life. Mm. Um, but then beyond that, you know, when people have dysfunction or deviations from, you know, the normal or just kind of being in, in homeostasis, it can be a very helpful model to look at the world through um, and lenses of, you know, what can this person do to empower themselves when they're out of my office to, to help themselves. But from a practitioner's point of view, it helps kind of always emphasize the most fundamental pieces of of human physiology kind of being sleep recovery the food that you put in your body and and so forth exercise it's almost like i just got this sort of first i got this idea of like shadow work where you're like like putting light on all of the places in the body like almost a game of operation that would like ding if you <laughs> like not working that's like disintegrated and then I had this vision of like an x-ray machine if you literally put some through a machine and you look at somebody like holistically my experience and you're like oh well this is off and that's why this is off and this is why this isn't working so like through pretty invasive blood work and like stool tests and um, hormones and then you know, the physical body. And then I know that you also very much work with like the mental health aspect. And in my experience with you, it's been like, okay, well, what have you experienced? And as a result, what's not working? So I know I came to you like uh, probably about a year ago and I had started my like healing journey, whatever, but you know, things were disconnected and you have put me through all of these things to be like, okay, this isn't working. This isn't working. And this is why, which is I think why what you do is so interesting because it is all connected. Yeah. And so, you know, the level of, of moving beyond just the philosophical understanding of functional medicine to the diagnostic applications thereof, you know, basically, like you said, exactly, we're looking at the, the body as a complex system and kind of diving into where some of the pieces may not be, you know, all the way clicked on. Um, and that's kind of our job to figure out, well, is it this piece in and of itself that's the issue or is it something upstream or downstream from it? And then getting as much data as we can to support uh, conclusions and, and kind of work with early um, differential diagnosis to kind of support the best way forward, um, all while knowing that, you know, it's, it's, it's still a lot of guesswork. Mm. You know, it's still a lot of practice and, and pattern recognition and kind of figuring out, well, you know, if, if this marker over here is elevated, then the likelihood based on my experience is that something down in this pattern, just totally separate is also going to be, you know, somewhat of an issue. And then, you know, you kind of hit the nail on the head with looking at the body as a region of dysfunction, but then also looking at the mind as a region of dysfunction and also not separating the two. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, we'll, we'll probably get into it, but, you know, I, I bear no distinction between body and mind. <clears throat> They're both very physical entities. And, you know, if, if we treat them as such and, and, you know, appreciate the energetic quality of all um, life and all function, then we can really start to tease apart where energy dysfunction in the way that you believe or value or feel about yourself or have different you know, traumatic experiences and, and, and the results from that, how that can manifest in different body systems, 
-hmm. And, you know, especially as far as the, the limiting beliefs that can also reflect on how your brain processes where you are in a hierarchy and your social status and all those different things and how that plays into endocrine system with testosterone levels and just kind of how confident you can feel. Hmm. Yeah. I think that's so powerful. Like this idea of like the body mind connection. I, I mean, I subscribe to that wholeheartedly to the extent that like, you know, learning to trust myself, which I think is really our, all of our learnings as we go through this journey of life, like to get closer and closer to ourselves, not outside ourselves. Yesterday I was, um, I was called to like, stay still. Like that was my intuition. And I canceled my boxing instructor. And then I was like, fuck it, I'm going because boxing puts me back in my body. And I wanted to get out of my head. So I go and within the first 10 minutes of hitting the bag, I literally like hurt this muscle right here, which to me was like, okay, well you can't make a fist. You need to like stop gripping. Like I was just holding on so tight to all of these things are out of my control. So then back to like this mind body connection, like we literally live in these vessels that are constantly giving us information. And it's just a matter of like valuing the information or just like reinterpreting it up here in some sort of other way, you know? Yeah. So I think that you've been so um, integral in that, in my journey and so many other people I know. And, and, and I was curious to that like extent, like what made you get into this instead of just like traditional medicine, like, were you always drawn this way? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I started this journey kind of in, in, in chiropractic school. So I was, I started off with an alternative mindset to begin with. Right. So, you know, very vitalistic kind of body heals itself and, 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 you know, with some different input to the nervous system via the, the adjustment or spinal manipulation that you can fix a lot of things from a communication perspective from the body um, and the brain down and so forth. So, I mean, that was kind of the, the background that I went into the healing arts with. And when I left that to pursue a larger scope of practice with nursing and, and the nurse practitioner role, then I was able to kind of integrate the alternative side with the conventional allopathic side, and then really become more of an integrative practitioner, utilizing all the tools available and not hamstringing myself by kind of having this odd pharmaceutical natural dichotomy. Hmm. And so, and since you've made that shift, like, I assume like everything has shifted for you personally and like in your practice. I mean, even in the past year, I've seen how, how much your practice has changed. Yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, I've been pretty much the same. I mean, obviously there's been a tremendous growth just from a, again, pattern recognition perspective, having more and more clients kind of come in and, and, and help reinforce or, you know, divorce certain thought patterns behind how to treat or how to address different conditions. Um, but I would say, you know, my, my MO has always been the same from early practice until now, uh, which is, you know, again, uh, really focus on the whole physiologic healing of an individual and, and their overall well-being, which is not just their physical, but their emotional, their, you know, quote unquote spiritual, and then their, their physical body too. And, you know, I will say early on, I was very focused on just physical because it's, it's the most manifest, right? Um, but through the years, I definitely recognize that there's, there's a missing piece in well-being, and that's really how people talk to themselves and how people uh, are living discordant lives with what they believe and what they behave. And, you know, it's just, it was just always kind of a mess. It's like, you can, you can make people's blood look, you know, super clean and fantastic and have their hormones balanced, all these different kinds of things, but they're still kind of miserable. Mm, right. And yeah. That's, that's a disservice um, in, in my opinion. And so if we don't have or hold the space for people to kind of be safe and, and voice where things may not be going the way they want them to in, in their personal lives or in their work lives or whatever, just kind of be an open area to, to voice all things that have to do with their well-being. And, and that's something that I've really created in the past year or so. 
Yeah. I mean, with that said, I think that's like the most important thing that I've learned. Like people want to be seen and they want to be heard. And traditionally, when you walk into a doctor's office, it's very much like white coat. It's very sterile. And it's very like, oh, well, you have a gut issue. So we're going to do this and you'll be fine. Like the gut is if it's the second brain, fine, it might really be the first brain, you know, and, and really looking into, okay, so what is it going on around you and inside of you that's causing this dysfunction in your gut? And that's how, I mean, I think that you run your practice, which I think is, is how all experiences should be because, um, again, in, in what I've known other, it's, it's never about how you're actually feeling. It's just what's wrong with you. Right. Or why. Yeah. And, and, and for me, like feeling is the most fundamental reason for existence. And if we don't honor our feelings or if we don't account for them, or if we don't learn from them, then we're, we're disrupting, you know, what I believed that the core essence of consciousness, right? Mm-hmm. So if we don't pay attention to feeling and we don't allow ourselves to kind of assess the hidden causes of the reason we feel, then we're never going to address those causes and and we're going to get these yellow flags in our perceptual lens subconsciously that are always rising up to conscious awareness mm-hmm. giving you anxiety or, or or fear or unsettledness and and then you know the response is i don't like that feeling i just want to get rid of it right when yeah. really it's just going to tell you something yeah i think that's what's another thing that i've you know i've been so uh, grateful to learn is like to honor the anxiety, to honor the fear. It's, it's presenting itself so that you can listen to it and, and hear it. And then, you know, create change in your life or in your body or in your experience that then like leads to less anxiety and fear, as opposed to just like medicating it or running away from it. And I think that is so the natural tendency because you know, there aren't that many places that we can feel safe in that fear, you know, can feel Mm -hmm. safe in that anxiety. And to think that, you know, in a, uh, a doctor's setting, you know, in a medical setting, you can, can feel that way is pretty profound. So thank you for that. Yeah, of course. Um, so let's just say, because I think we talk, we're talking about limiting beliefs and consciousness for those of the listeners that, that aren't, you know, completely well-versed in, in those things. Like I come in and, um, I'm tired. I'm anxious. My period's off. I get bloated. Um, I'm not really sleeping. It's just like the whole thing. Like, what, what do you, what do we do? Tell me what you're going to put me through. So first and foremost, when, when people have very physiologic manifestations, what, whatever the root is, there has to be sufficient care to reduce the symptoms of discomfort before you will be able to, you know, whip up the motivation to actually pursue more of the root cause. So, you know, if people have sleep issues, if people have bloating or issues with, with eating, right? So the everyday stuff. So from the fundamentals perspective, we've got nutrition and we have sleep. If, if those two are off for whatever reason, and the solution doesn't seem to be simple, like, you know, to have a gluten sensitive person still eating gluten, like, okay, stop eating gluten, see what goes away. And if it, if that, if it's that easy, then we can kind of go to more of a root cause. Okay. Well, maybe there's some deeper immune dysfunction that we can, you know, play with or figure out or, or, or kind of repair any kind of leaky gut and prevent, you know, further food related immune dysfunction. Um, but a lot of people have really trouble with sleep and, and sleep is not something to play with because if you don't have, a decent nighttime routine and you're not getting, you know, a decent enough um, meta regulation, which is what sleep really is, then every other function is going to be kind of off. And it's very difficult to parse out what is the effect of not having homeostatic sleep regulation and what is true endocrine dysfunction or what is true, you know, amenorrhea or not having your kind of typical period cycle. So, you know, differentiating what is what happens kind of after the person feels a little bit better. Hmm. So we really try to focus on some kind of symptom resolution to get a little bit of a buy-in and say, okay, we're on the right track. And I tell them very upfront, it's like, look, we're not getting at the root cause yet. I'm trying to help you feel a little bit better Hmm. so that you're ready for the work down the road because it's not super easy. And if you're not feeling better, it's much harder 
to do the things that you're going to have to do. Right. Which is so true for everything in life. I think it's just like a little bit of fresh air, a little bit of breath, and then like, you know, start to find your footing again. And then, okay, then we're going to really, you know, dive in deeper because, which is, it is hard as you say, but it's easier than just going straight to it. Because I think in a lot of ways, if you just go straight to the root, you're not ready to receive that information, whatever it is, or, or ready to do the work to, you know, work around it or work through it. Right. Yeah. Um. So if someone comes in, they go through all of these things. I want to talk about the consciousness piece too, and the limiting belief stuff, because again, someone's coming to you and they're like, I'm not sleeping. My gut's off. You know, mm. I have these back aches and then you look at them and you're like, well, <laughs> you know, and you talk about the consciousness piece and the limiting belief. Piece. Like what, what, what does that conversation look like? Like, how do we bring that in? Ooh, well, that is not a first visit kind of conversation, but, you know, generally speaking, you know, there will be an element of what does your support system look like? What does work look like are you happy where you are in life has it gone the way that you've expected it to and really a lot of conversation around unmet expectation will kind of start to evolve and um, once we figure out some of these things that they haven't ever actually voiced right then they're kind of like oh well number one I've never expected to have this conversation with, you know, someone like you in this office. And so that's almost disarming because it's a, an element of this person cares more about what I presented with. Mm. Um, but, you know, beyond that, you start to ask these deeper questions about life fulfillment and you understand very quickly that how could you have a physiologically healthy life if you're not pleased with where you are so far? if things aren't going the way you wanted them to, if the relationship that they have isn't going the way that they want it to, if they're, you know, feeling like they're stuck or lost or, you know, it's, it's unexpected turnout. Right. And, and when they're living that out, it's very hard for anything else to go. Correct. Right. So in, in, with that said, like how many or not, just like top line, how many people that, that, you know, your patients that you see come in and they're really like living their life as opposed to like watching their life be lived. I think there's, you know, cause when you say unmet expectations, then a lot of people sit in their lives and wait for things to change as opposed to making change, you know, and I assume that's why they're coming to you. Yeah. 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 And so, I mean, obviously when things are physically wrong, it's much easier to do that than when they're just kind of I guess emotionally wrong, but even when they're emotionally wrong, I mean, people don't seek me out, particularly when they're emotionally disturbed or, or dysfunctional, but you know, a lot of people have them comorbidly, right? So even though they're not coming for anxiety or depression, they're taking something for anxiety, or depression. So then I'll see that and be like, hey, what's, what's going on with this? Like hmm. how long have you been on these? What was the point? You know, were you running away from something? Were you, you know, dealing with something short-term and then just never got off of it? Like what's, what's the story there? So you know, a lot of people have it in the background and they're not giving it the attention that it deserves because they feel like it's solved. Hmm. Or feel like it's solved or is there like shame around it? Because I think I'm, for me, like, I feel like that would come up for me um, in the past. I feel like I have no shame around my experiences to date, but you know, how many people come in and they're like proud of the medication they're taking or the trauma they've experienced, or, you know, I think in so many ways, isn't medication for those things, like such a bandaid as opposed to looking at the root cause and, you know, to what you're doing and trying, no. So kind of, I mean, there's definitely the people that something will happen. That's so overwhelming to their nervous system that they just can't deal right they don't have the structures in place they don't have the support system in place to contextualize or you know really make sense of whatever event has has thrown them for you know ontological shock but in that sense you know they'll go out and they'll seek help they just need to reduce the affect it's just too much it's an overload got it um and, and hopefully they do that versus self-medicate with something that they have access to right um but in that sense you know it, the the astute provider will say, look, I understand that what you're going through right now is 
too hard to deal with on your own. Okay. I, I can have compassion for that and, and understand that you need something right now. But let me tell you this, this is going to be a short-term solution because eventually I want you to be able to confront what happened, strategize how to mitigate it from happening again and give your mind peace around the uncertainty that happened and, and was broken there. And so that's how medication in the psychological sphere should be utilized as literally a Band-Aid mm. to help the wound kind of scab over and, and cover up and then dive in to the deeper rooted issues that that event exposed. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, when I look back at my experiences over the course of my life, like I think I probably experienced pretty deep depression without knowing. And there's definitely some times that I probably could have been medicated. And I don't think I had the tools or the wherewithal or was in too much shame to be like, Hey, I need help. And mm -hmm. also like, you know, boxing saved my life You know, every day, got my anxiety out of my body and finding my breath in yoga. But, you know, to my journey to find like plant medicine or psychedelic assisted therapy, I think it showed up for me when I was finally ready to like go under and see the root of the pain that I wasn't even allowing myself to fully feel. And yeah. I know that, you know, in your practice, you also integrate other holistic methods, um, including ketamine assisted therapy. And I was, mm. um, hoping, tell me about that and how patients come in for that directly or end up, you know, having those treatments. How does that, what does that look like? Yeah. So it's not something that I offer like people off the street, you know, with, within the membership program that I have, you know, people come for various reasons and seldomly is it mental health, but it is such a huge part of, you know, my, my entire, uh, you know, mode of practice to deal with psychological resiliency as a core tenant of, of how I practice. And so, you know, I will always let people know that the tools we have available from, you know, a cortical perspective with transcranial magnetic stimulation and, and then the subcortical therapies with either the psychedelics or the dissociatives like ketamine, but it's always in the context of there's a lot of work that's going to go into it. So I have people utilize Jordan Peterson's um, past and future authoring program to, you know, for lack of a better explanation, I'll just use his, you know, to, to get your story straight. And, and most people have never written their story, right? And so it's a very challenging maneuver just on that alone. And, you know, so people will spend about a month just getting their story straight. And so when they do that, they send it to me and I'm able to kind of get an understanding of who they are and where they came from mm. so that we can figure out where there are still important, affectively valent memories that either led to restricted beliefs or non-restricted beliefs, and then challenge the, the, the person at that age that levied those predictions, right? The, the ability to kind of say, this happened because of this. And because of that, I have to behave in a certain way, hmm. right? So in order to be shown love, I have to, you know, be quiet or I have to not speak up or, you know, there's various different things, right? And so depending on what the person is having an issue with, if it's anxiety or grief or substance abuse or whatever it might be, you know, it's kind of going back to the, the pre-declarative memory zone, which is kind of that early childhood, less than seven years old, when all of these innate non-declarative predictions are, are synthesized by the brain as kind of a default mode algorithm to then portray to the consciousness what to think, how to interpret, and how to perceive. And then that ultimately shapes how you look at the world. Right. And so it's really going back into those mechanisms and uprooting them and replacing them with how to behave now to meet their perceived needs. Yeah, I think, I mean, so much that's being done in the psychedelic, you know, assisted therapy world to uproot subconscious memories, I think is, is such profound healing work, because as you said, even with the future past author program, like 
you know, finding where the memory is. And often it isn't conscious. Often it is subconscious, which I think is, I assume the dissociative ketamine, it, it digs, does it dig into that? Does it, can it uproot uh, subconscious memories? Um, yes and no. So it, what it, what it kind of allows you to do is again, with, with the past authoring, it, it brings up a lot of memory and it brings up a lot of feeling. And what we can do is take that feeling because again, the whole point is that they are non-declarative memories. So you don't have an actual firsthand experience that you can recollect. Now you, you can piecemeal some of the things together, but that's also the beauty of re-narrativizing it because as an adult, you can reshape exactly what happened right. at least in how you interpret what happened, um, especially in light of surviving it. Hmm. So if, if you can go back and say, look, this was, this was terrible. Um, but you know, five-year-old me, I understand why now we behave this way with, um, women or with men or with authority figures or whatever, but I don't need that strategy anymore because I'm, I'm an adult. Right. And, and now that I need to have a, an appropriate relationship with authority and with, you know, other males and other females, especially with, within a romantic sense, I can't behave that way anymore. And it doesn't serve me now. Mm -hmm. All right, so what we did then was protective and it promoted my survival, but now I can re-narrativize the need for that behavioral repertoire or pattern and move on, right? And so the awareness that you're doing something wrong in lieu of getting what you need now is really what we're doing. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of showing the brain that you don't have to perceive the world in this way anymore because that environment is no longer necessary. Right. I mean, I think it's, it's so profound because, you know, even to this extent, like I'm 35 years old and just moved in with my boyfriend, you know, two months ago, and I was still seeing certain places in the apartment from a place of trauma that I was like off limits for me and um, reliving in my past, not in my present. And so I think to be able to rewrite the story, be it with, you know, the help of secondary things or just through revisiting those memories in a safe place, in a safe way is really powerful because I think the amount too of, you know, society that's living subconsciously, you know, not actually being where they are because of what happened to them when they were younger, seeing the world through a lens that's no longer real is, um, is, is enormous. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that there are that many practices like yours that, that speak to all of that because, you know, the, those dark places within us, those shadows, they're, they're scary to look into, but they don't have to be if you're seen and heard and with, you know, professional help or in a safe environment. And otherwise we keep like repeating our patterns as if we were five or seven or whatever else. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it's even scarier, like it's definitely scary to do the shadow work, right. To, 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 to understand the capability of malevolence in each of us, right? And the ability to do things that we never would have thought or to reconcile that we've done things that we would never want to do again, mm. right? But it's even scarier to exhibit those behaviors that you know or that you don't know you're capable of because that's almost traumatic in and of itself, mm -hmm. right? So to, you know, a common one is, you know, people will think that they don't have the capability of, of hurting someone they love or, you know, being, you know, unfaithful in a relationship. And then they find themselves in that scenario and they're like, how could I have done this, right? How, what kind of person am I um, that I would transgress such a fundamental value of mine? Mm -hmm. and, and this is what goes back to, kind of the ontological shock and, and understanding that, oh, you're not actually the person that you thought you were. And so understanding that you do have the potential to do everything opposite of what you kind of stand for is a very important exercise to do. Um, you know, it's kind of the, the stoic premeditatio malorum, right? To, to meditate on, on evil, right? And to kind of understand that 
there is a possibility for everything to happen, right? You could get in the car and be in an accident and, and lose someone that you love or, um, you know, you'd be walking down the street and something literally just fall out of the sky and, and injure you or, you know, you could lose a child, you could lose a parent. There's, there's all these different mechanisms that we don't think about as particularly as Americans because we're so sheltered against reality, mm-hmm. I would say. And I think COVID was a great example of this because, you know, once again, we came at an existential brush with something being able to eliminate life that was not necessarily anyone's fault, right? And so it kind of built a distrust in the safety blanket that we had that, you know, medicine will always be able to save us or, you know, I'm a healthy person, so I'm not going to get sick or, Mm -hmm. you know, all these different kind of narratives that we built around protection and, you know, longevity kind of came and fell apart. And I think that reinstituted this kind of sense of, well, I need to make sure I am as healthy as I can be. I need to make sure that I can plan for things if they do go the wrong way. And so again, meditating on the possibility for bad things to happen is an important part of setting expectations up and to not be disappointed or surprised when they do end up going that way. So how do you think that relates to physicality? So both the limiting beliefs of someone coming in and um, you know, doing the past author and, and facing memories or you know, the meditative fear exercise of really facing the fear, but either way, whether you're carrying fear, or you're carrying shame, like then can we put that back into this vessel and this body? And like, is that where the discordance, you know, how do you reconnect it then? So you see all of these things. Well, so part of the homework is also reading a book by Sam Harris called Free Will. And, and basically it's a it's a thought experiment into a lot of different ways that, you know, free will is actually more illusory and even to call it an illusion is kind of unfair also, but to, to have people kind of understand the concept of, of the totality of prior causes and, and most of our core experiences not being chosen by us, right. In terms of, choosing our environment that we grew up in, early school experience, our parents, grandparents, like all these different massive inputs to the kind of humans that we're going to be that we have no control over that. Hmm. And, and so in that sense, we have very little or no control over how our algorithms develop, how our default perceptions develop. And so that basically you can say, when you come to a certain point where you are in control or an agent over your behavior, the choices available to you are already kind of pre-chosen because you only perceive that there are a certain amount of choices to make in any given search situation. So even though I can choose to pick up or not pick up the cup in front of me, the only reason I have those choices and I'm not thinking about picking up this chair over here, is because my perception has geared me to pick up on certain things in my environment that's also mediated by how, how thirsty I am or if I need you know, some other instrument in my surrounding. But on a more serious note, it eliminates the need for shame and guilt, right? Because anything that you've done in the past, not that it's excusable that you're not responsible for it, but in some big sense, it's not really your fault, mm-hmm. right? And, and people always kind of take a step back there and say, well, you know, if it's not my fault, well, whose fault is it? Or, you know, I can't, I can't accept that because, you know, I, I hurt somebody, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, let's, let's take a step back and say, yes, you have to take responsibility for the behavior that you execute, right? That's always going to be the case but to assign fault to you as an agent for making a choice that was based on a totality of prior causes leading up to it. Well, that's unfair. Hmm. Right. And so if you actually want to change the behavior moving forward, 
you take responsibility for what happened and you say, I don't want to do that again, or that behavior didn't serve my ultimate need for connection or belonging or love or whatever, then you course correct, right? The whole point of shame and guilt as a kind of tertiary cortical ability is to punish yourself and therefore motivate change mm. from doing that again, right? right? It's, it's almost a very... <laughs> Um, like masochistic way of <laughs> yeah, and I think it's yeah. a very you know Judeo-Christian kind of religious leftover. I think that just the, that you are an agent that has active choice, and that if you if you transgress or do anything that is is sinful, while you know that it is something you shouldn't do, then it's your fault, and you are missing the mark, and that you need to atone for what you did hmm. and, and move forward. Right. But even, even with that, it's like people can't really shake the fact when they do something bad, even if they ask for forgiveness or have some other element, people will also make them feel ashamed and, and, you know, unless they're really strong in their belief and, and, and so forth, they will start to get eaten away at from the inside. Whereas, you know, again, the whole point of, corrective behavior or punishment or shame or guilt, even if it's personally levied, is to not do that thing again. Right. And so if you can change your behavior without feeling the shame and the guilt, then there's no reason to feel shame or guilt, hmm. right? That reason is, is gone. Right. And I think it's again, and when it manifests, whether it's shame or guilt, not to do something again, and then it manifests of like either the temptation to do it again or whatever else it shows up as anxiety. And it's like, okay, well, what's the anxiety? What am I afraid of? Oh, going back to the old pattern. Thank you, anxiety. Thank you, fear. I don't want to go back or I want to stay here and I want to move forward. So I think that's like where the connection back to like how you're feeling is to really like lean in to that, right? As opposed to create more discordance between your mind and your body and your emotion and your feeling. Well, yeah, absolutely. So you know, anxiety is a really interesting feeling because it's it's an emotional state that's not reflective of legitimate danger in the environment, right? It's it's picking up a pattern that has high potential for turning into some kind of real threat. So fear is an emotional state where there's legitimately something in the environment that could be that is dangerous, right? And so you need to evaluate whether it's best to flee, freeze, or fight, and turn on the, the aggressive defense uh, system after that. But with anxiety, it's more of just this perceived threat that's not known if it's actually there or not. So a good example of this is when, you know, with, with rat or mouse experiments, and <clears throat> if you douse a cage with cat odor, right, the mouse is going to smell that and immediately cower, go find a place that it can hide. So there's initial fear there that then leads to a behavioral representation of get the hell out. And so they run away and, and then that fear kind of turns into more of an anxiety where they're just less likely to explore an open area, but they'll start to, you know, raise their nose and sniff the cage and kind of start to explore a little bit and make sure that I can go to this place in my cage and, and not have an attack happen or not see a cat or not have any other issues. And eventually they'll explore all of the unknown territory and reduce uncertainty to the degree that they feel relatively safe again. So the point of anxiety in that sense is to keep you from being dumb, but also not immobilize you. Mm. So it's a, it's an early sense of pay attention, try to find what the hidden cause of you feeling this way is in the environment, seek it out, address it. If you can, then try to fill in that blank space in the map, right? Of what you don't understand. Mm. If you can't, then that's where the, the stoic nature of, well, there's nothing I can do about this, right? If there are, if there are corollaries or tangents that can be somewhat you know, addressed or, or, or completed or, or looked into, then you can start to use that as a strategy. Um, but most of the anxiety kind of happens because there are people or situations or 
other scenarios that are out of their control. And there's this perceived sense of a need of control and that has to be dropped. Hmm. Yeah. I think the amount of control that we think we have is, is completely outrageous considering we really don't have control over anything. I mean, we don't. And I think that was also the irony of COVID. It was like, well, you know, all of a sudden everything is, is out of our control. So we're going to try and control it even more when like there, it was really about, for me at least, it was just the complete letting go. And as I let go, I was sort of was like lifted into something, you know, more introspective for me to, to understand because I wasn't in this fear-based mindset anymore of in my own life, forget about COVID. So I think it's, you know, this idea of like, when we stop gripping, we make space to grow. Like, I think so much of coming to see a doctor or a medical professional is about acknowledging that you don't feel well, even if you don't know why you just don't Mm -hmm. feel like, well, something is not working. And I think again, back to what you do, it's really about, okay, well, great. So your gut doesn't work or you're anxious or whatever else. Like, and then once you, as you say, you like sort of give a mouse a piece of cheese and then they're, you know, having fun with the cheese, they have a nibble. And then you're like, okay, are you ready? Kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And um, in so much of my own experience too, it was the same with the psychedelics. It was like, it opened up my mind to like, oh my gosh, what is here? Am I ready? Okay, I'm ready. And I think even prior to that, it was like my movement practice, my meditation practice. Like I had been on this self-healing tract, same as like masochistic tract, but like since I've been 15, trying to like reorganize myself so I could be in a place of homeostasis. And then I got used to being out of homeostasis, which I think is probably something you see very often too. You know, people, they get used to not sleeping. They get used to being stressed. They get used to being bloated and we overcompensate or we make up excuses as to why we are this way, as opposed to being like, this is why we are this way. What can we do differently? Right. Yeah. So I know that um, in your practice specifically, you don't work, you know, with many or plant medicine at all besides ketamine, but I'm curious, like how you see where this functional healing world or holistic healing world is going. Cause you know, there's been so much around it. There's so much happening. And I think you're so on the precipice of, of this movement, like prescribing, you know, all of the amino acids and injections and really working through invasive blood work to, to heal people from the inside out. But I'm curious, like with all the modalities out there, like what's your interpretation of what's going on? Within the actual psychedelic space? Yeah. And healing world in general, but yes, specifically we can start with psychedelic. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, I think the the overall enamored feel that people kind of have with this psychedelic renaissance is, I mean, it's exciting, number one, because it works so fast to kind of break through a lot of these ego defenses um, for people to really understand what it feels like to be in unity again. And I think that's a really, it's a really important piece to understand because we've kind of lost this global judeo-christian belonging like this sense of kind of playing the same game across the field and understanding how people are going to behave in different contexts and and just having the same fundamentals um i'm not saying that's all good but one of the important pieces of that is the spiritual sense and belonging from a transcendent point of view and what the psychedelics really allow is is a reunification with the sense of awe, right? And I think that with the hustle and bustle of American society, there's not a lot of place to just experience awe. And the power that's associated with contextually putting yourself from, again, just being this center of attention for for you, and it, it is that way, when you break that down and realize how small you are and how much of a piece everyone plays as, as kind of just being in this collective unity, then it makes you really, really appreciative and grateful of the role that you have to play, especially when it comes to humanity at large, right. And kind of understanding that we're all in this together 
and that the collective reduction of, of suffering is kind of the, the goal that most people set out to do before they realize that they have a goal mm -hmm. and before they kind of start the, the capitalistic kind of push to, to make a career and kind of do all these different things. It's like most people actually start off altruistically wanting to help people in some, in some way or animals or some kind of thing, right? Um, but with the accessibility of this stuff from a medical perspective and, and with, you know, therapeutic oversight, it's, it's amazing in how fast that you can uproot limiting and, and challenging beliefs that, that prevent people from really becoming who they want to be. Um, you know, no one wants to sit in traumatic stress and, and not sleep and have flashbacks and, and all these different things. But, you know, up to this point, there's really been no therapeutic intervention to deal with those kinds of issues, you know, except for, you know, pretty intensive talk therapy and EMDR. And, um, but those still take a lot of time mm -hmm. and they take a lot of work. And I think the, the beautiful thing with the psychedelics is you can't really fight it. You know, you can fight it and have a bad time, but even at the end of that experience, you end up really winning. And, mm -hmm. and so I think we don't really understand what's happening on a, on a neurochemical level, but I think on a deeper level, it's, it's kind of helping that deep narrative generative structure that orients conscious awareness around a more collective, more unified, more transcendental belonging. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think in back to where we started of like, you know, everything's connected, our beliefs to how our ailments are showing up in your body, you know, just the connectivity within us. And then, as you said, the psychedelics, how it sort of, it creates this space where you're, you're in the ether almost. And you're realizing, I don't even know. And I, and I acknowledge that, you know, how small you are, but like how much a part of, you know, like I see it as like that almost not even small. I see it as you are such a part of something that is so much bigger than you. <laughs> so we're probably saying the same thing, but differently, yeah. but in a way that, you know, who you are, what you stand for, what you're here for matters but it is the limiting beliefs that takes us out of that, you know, this idea of we do matter. It does matter. You know, your where you come from matters. What happened to you matters, but it isn't who you are. You know, it's not about the definition. It's not about the story, even though it's so helpful to write it. And I think that's how you get here. It's really about, you know, who you are, how you define yourself aside from all of the shit <laughs> to really be able to see yourself in love as opposed to in ego or in trauma or in uh, lack, you know, it's, and I think so much of what you said called out to me, like this uh, abundance versus scarcity mindset, you know, the limiting beliefs that are the scarcity as opposed to the abundance of there is enough, you are enough, you're more than enough, there will always be enough, you know, coming from the place of have as opposed to have not and operating from there. Yeah, well, and always kind of recognizing that while it may be good to live in a mindset that you are enough, you always want to realize that, that potential is always something you should be chasing. Mm -hmm. And, and from, from the perspective of, of having forward movement towards a goal, especially one that's developed after kind of reunifying with your younger self right with with the with that childlike goal of of helping or or you know whatever it might have been that you really wanted to be when you were young and had a a truly wide open potential mm -hmm. and slate for for altruistic behavior once you reunify with that, you know, whatever career you've chosen, you know, as an adult and, and whatever expectations may or may not have been met, you know, the, I'll, I'll take a, a tangent here. A lot of, a lot of the clients that I have that do the ketamine assisted therapy are very successful people. And, and I would say more so women that are in high positions of um, 
high positional authority from lawyers to physicians and, and, and all those different kinds of, of careers. But they realized that life hasn't turned out the way they thought it would once they reached the pinnacle of, of this um, success. And more often than not, what, what they'll discover is they followed the goal and the dream of someone or something else, right? And generally it's the, the, the feminist ideology of, you know, it is your duty to go out and do to the best of your ability, whatever you want to do, right? What happened with most of these individuals, though, is that they didn't actually know what they wanted to do, and they were told, well, you should be this, you should be that, you know, you can make a lot of money doing this, and you'd be very well doing that. Um, the problem is when you get to the point in your life where you're like, well, I've gotten what I thought I wanted, but I don't feel fulfilled. I feel like I've missed out on raising a family. I feel like um, now that I can't have children, I really want children, right? Or I have kids, but I haven't been the attentive father or the attentive mother that I wanted to be. And now I feel like I'm going to have pain and suffering at the end of my life because I won't feel like I gave you know, it all to my progeny <clears throat> or to my legacy, right? And so when people discover that so late, they start to get bitter and resentful about the choices they made and they feel shame and regret and all these different things, again, that are punishments hmm. that they're putting on themselves all because of buying into an ideology that sounded good, that seemed good, that gave them success, that gave them everything they thought they wanted, but it turns out that that's not actually what they wanted. And so what, what a lot of the medicine will do is help you understand exactly where you deviated from that course of, again, the, the childlike dreams and goals. They're really fed from the subconscious as a kiddo. And, you know, it can help you re, reorganize and find where you can still honor those dreams and goals mm -hmm. with the position that you're in now and not have to start over and not have to, you know, reorient your entire life. And you can also reduce the regret because you know, and, and you can appreciate where you are, but you're also aware and mindful that you want to do something else and that that's okay too. Yeah. I think it comes down to honoring yourself, be it like listening to the dis-ease you feel in your body and, you know, coming to see you or feeling the dis-ease you feel in your heart because you aren't necessarily where you thought you would be or did something for other reasons. I think so, and I say this, as I say, I think like so much of this is, you know, all of this noise up here, whether it's from other places or other people that we then absorb and create the noise and the story as opposed to really being in our bodies, being in our physicality, being in our heart, being in our present and being so affected by what other people think as opposed to, you know, how we feel. And um, the one thing that I keep wanting to ask you, and I think you'll laugh at me, but I, I don't know how, and I give you so much credit that you must have such a boundary because hearing these stories would just make me sad. You know, I feel like this, this idea of we're all on our own journey and we've all been conditioned to whatever, whatever extent. And it's, it's really up to us to take our sovereignty back and create our own choices and write a new narrative, but there's so much pain. And I think part of what the psychedelic healing is doing is sort of, you know, putting it out there and creating love around it. But, you know, the more and more I see and hear, I see in here just so much pain. And I think that people are starting to finally be willing enough to like face that pain as opposed to stuff it down. So do these things, you know, like where's the, how do you create the, the boundary? Like, you know, and not get so depleted after a long day so that you can be for your family too and for yourself. Well, I mean, honestly, I got to chalk it up to um, a very nice distinction between empathy and compassion. 
you know, I, I tell people this kind of to prepare them <clears throat> before we do any kind of therapy, you know, I, I do have a very strong sense of emotional contagion, right? But I also understand that I don't want that, mm-hmm. right? So I set a very clear intention to limit the counter transference that I have when I hear a story, right? So if, if they say something and it makes me feel a certain way, I register that because it might be important for me to kind of dive in and say, well, you know, I kind of felt this when you told me that, is that kind of what you might've felt or not, right? But what I definitely don't do is assume that I can feel what that person's feeling when they Mm -hmm. tell me a story. I don't think it's fair from an empathetic perspective to, other words, from just to rob what they might be experiencing. so one of the ways that I avoid that is just to employ compassion. I can understand that what you're going through or what you went through or, or whatever the issue or story is, I can understand that that was very difficult and hard and ultimately that you want to move past it. And that's where we move away from and toward the healing side of things, right? So it's not, it, it's validating where they came from and it's validating that it was difficult and it was shocking and it was traumatic. And then it's moving away from that completely. Yeah. Right? We just do that once. We don't live in it. We don't mm-hmm. sit there. It's, it's not about where they want to move away from. It's where they want to move toward. And so in that sense, you know, it's very freeing for them just to sit in the emotion, to feel it, to cry, to be enraged, to just process feeling. Hmm. and then reorganize, you know, around the narrative and what it meant and forgive people. And, and that's, that's a huge piece of it too, is, is, is just the, the feeling of hatred and rage and, you know, and the inability to forgive people, all it's doing is hurting them. Right. Right. And, and, and people know that, but it's those emotions and those feelings are the coping strategies because they don't know how to get over it. Otherwise, if they didn't have their anger, they would be sad. Mm, Yeah. If they they felt their sadness, they might not live another day. Mm. Right. And so once they can feel comfortable breaking down those barriers of protective emotion, rage and and, and hatred and, and so forth, and feel the deeper loss, the grief, loss of innocence, loss of whatever it might be, that's where the real healing can occur, is getting to the primary root emotion, Mm. feeling it, understanding it, trying to understand what it means, what it's trying to tell them, right? They lost somebody, they lost themselves. Um, How do we reunite with what you lost? Yeah. And, uh, and once people figure that out, they can forgive. They don't feel heavy. They don't have that burden. And, <clears throat> you know, then their whole physiology starts to work better. Yeah. And with that, I think the reunification of like identifying the root, whatever, speaking this out, acknowledging, finding forgiveness for self or for someone else, the letting go, it's, it, it's an energetic, it's an energetic way. And I think you're, like you said, your body starts working differently. You start moving differently. You start sleeping differently because so much of what we're carrying is psychological and it's how it affects every part of our physiology that I think is what you're really uprooting. And I mean, even again, like speaking to like forgiveness, you know, I think that that's such a, it's such a hard part of the equation because it feels that way or it can feel that way. Or we tell ourselves that. And I know that like, I woke up, (laughs) I woke up on Monday morning and I was like called to like, it's time for forgiveness. Like that was just it. And I was just like very clear of like, okay, I'm connected to myself, but it took me like literally going to sit in my dark closet and like channel the five-year-old little girl and like, you know, call her out you know, and like promise her candy and tell myself like, it's okay, Olivia, we can eat candy once in a while because it makes the five-year-old feel safe. And like literally like bring her out of this like darkness with me in this way of forgiving. And with that like release in the past couple of days, like I feel so much lighter because 
I granted myself, you know, the permission to grow through this idea of just letting go of like letting go of the gripping. And of course I've done a lot of work, you know, as you know, but, um, it takes courage to be able to say, hello, I need help. And then mm-hmm. to say, you know, oh, it's not just my gut or my hormones. It's something else. Let's, you know, look into that story. Let's rewrite it. And as you said, it's important to have this forward motion. When I said, you know, I'm enough, I actually hate that term. I think really what the term is like, I am, you know, being grateful enough and, and realistic in the fact that like, you're worthy just because you are, just because you are, because you're here. Yeah. Not because of what you do, where you were, where you're going. And then from there, it's like, how can I step forward into this version of myself that I am meant to be? And I yeah. think that's the work that you do. And, I'm well, and that's, that's a very important part, right? So <clears throat> when people get through this past authoring and, and we do a, a couple of sessions just to kind of clean up the, the shit in the past, we turn towards the future, right? And they start to do the futuring authoring, the mm-hmm. future authoring program, which is, you know, you plan out what you want your life to look like in the, in, in five years from now. And you, you literally go through and you say, okay, in order to have this life that I want, here's what I have to do. Right. And then on the converse side, you look at what would life look like in five years if you fell victim to all your vices, mm. right? If you kept behaving in the way that you know is not beneficial for you, but you kind of fall in, tumble over and over again. And so there's a sufficient motivation to run from that trajectory. And then that can also turn into, you know, being enamored by the potential future you have and running toward that. Right. So there's, you know, some people need to be motivated by fear, mm-hmm. right? Fear of that bad life that they've concocted, right? But eventually, and most people will get to the point where they're like, you know, I don't, I don't care so much about falling into that pit anymore because I'm more motivated just by the potential mm-hmm. that I have to reach what I love, right? What I would love to have in five years um, that they're just motivated straight up by that. I love that. And I think ultimately, you know, as I've come through my journey and I will always be on my journey, I think the most powerful thing I think that I'm learning and I think it's forever learning is, you know, to really honor and trust myself that like, as much as I can seek outward for help, like really coming back to me and like clearing up all of the other shit that's blocking my ability to trust myself. So with that, I'm curious for you and someone who holds people in this space, like what is, you know, the tagline for this show is everything you need is inside really about trusting yourself. What does that look like for you? Well, first and foremost, you have to determine whether or not you are trustworthy, Hmm. right? Because a lot of people's intuition is actually misguided, right? Because if you don't, if you really, if you don't know what you want long-term, right, it is very easy to intuitively justify poor behavior for short-term gain, right? Or to stick with a behavior or emotion or whatever it might be that's not good for you long-term, but it does serve you in the short-term. So I think a lot of people will trick themselves intuitively and say that, well, this is my truth and, and blah, 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 but they haven't trained their intuition to actually be trustworthy. Fair. So, so to, yeah. the degree, to the degree that the person has developed a sense of self that is who they want and they will be able to detect, well, you know, if, if something comes up and I want to do it and intuitively I say, yes, I should go ahead and do that or, you know, whatever, pursue it. Well, that has to be in line with what I want in five years or 10 years or whatever it might be. So there's always this boundary or list of boundaries that you will have that your intuition can operate within because whenever you have an idea or action or pattern that you want to employ that goes without outside of those boundaries, then you know that intuitively is not going to get you what you need or what you want. Mm. 
So, you know, for all intents and purposes, setting up personal boundaries with yourself, with relationships, with friends and with family, like those are all important things to understand when things transgress those boundaries intuitively that should tell you and you're training this intuitive process at the same time that that is not a good idea right uh, like always honoring and and i would say also like those boundaries can change right? sure yeah. right but that also has to be done very very wisely because you set those boundaries in some way for a reason right so if you're willing to move them then there has to be significant justification and you know i'd also say mirrored by someone who loves you or is is in line with your process to also say yeah i can understand why you want to move that boundary okay boundaries man those are a really important exercise in truth <laughs> yeah boundaries are like breaks you want to test them out before you need them there you go boundaries are like breaks you want to test them out before you need them thank you so much for your time. How do we find you? Where do we find you? What if everyone wants to come see you? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Website, social, tell them what's helpful. Um, so I'm not, I'm not really on social, um, but I do have a website. It's, you know, designhealth.org. It's D-A-S-E-I-N um, health.org. If you want to reach out to my, my administrator, uh, Cheyenne, her email is Cheyenne at designhealth.org. Um, we're really not taking new patients right now. Uh, I think we'll probably open back up in July or, or August, but it really just depends on, you know, how how current membership and, and everything just either continues or has flux. Beautiful. Boundaries. Yeah. It's hard. <laughs> uh, I know. Thank you so, so, so much.